Thank you for coming this morning to Palm Vista Community Church. We continue our series in the book of Mark entitled Incredible. And this morning's message is from Mark chapter 8, beginning in verse 27 to Mark chapter 9, verse 1. The title of today's message is Following Jesus. Following Jesus. And Mark takes a turn in chapter 8, verse 27. And here's the turn. Jesus now begins to speak of what it means to follow him. And I pray that this morning, God would speak to you about what it means to be a follower of Jesus Christ. A follower of Jesus Christ is what the Bible calls a disciple. And so what does it mean to follow him? And these words we're about to read in Mark chapter 8. By the way, if you need a Bible, there is one in the back table. Mark chapter 8, verse 27 Jesus is telling the first century church, the first century disciples, what it means to follow him. But his words are just as authoritative for the 21st century disciples. That's us. So to that end, let's turn to God's authoritative word to learn what it means to follow Jesus. I'm reading from Mark chapter 8, verse 27. And Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, he asked his disciples, Who do people say that I am? And they told him, John the Baptist, and others say Elijah, and others one of the prophets. And he asked them, But who do you say that I am? Peter answered, You are the Christ. And he strictly charged them, to tell no one about him. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed. And after three days, rise again. And he said this plainly. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But... Turning and seeing his disciples, he, Jesus, rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Verse 34. And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Four, whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. Four, what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? Four, whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him the Son of Man also will be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. And he said to them, Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. Beginning in chapter 8, here in our text, moving to chapter 9 and then chapter 10, we have what theologians call the great discipleship discourse. Three times Jesus is going to predict his death immediately followed by an explanation of what it means to follow him. 
In our text this morning, he's going to address Peter in 8.32 because Peter is trying to rebuke Jesus and correct Jesus about what he just revealed about himself. That is, that he came to die for their sins. In chapter 9, verse 34, he's going to correct the disciples because in the midst of all this prediction of giving his life and serving others, they're busy arguing in the back about who's the greatest among them. And then in chapter 10, 37, he's got to have a little private chat with James and John because, you see, James and John were trying to lobby Jesus to be his top two disciples. Jesus, let us sit on your right and left-hand side. Three times he has to explain what does it mean to follow him. Three times he does so in the context of his death because they don't get it. And neither do we, do we? See, Jesus patiently explains to them what it means to follow him, what the normal Christian life is all about, what it means to follow a king who came to serve. They didn't understand it, and often neither do we. But before we discuss what it means to follow Jesus, we must first answer this question. Who is Jesus? Because you're not going to follow someone that you don't know. So we desperately need to see Jesus for who he is before we answer the question, what does it mean to follow him? If you look on the map here on the screen... Jesus has just taken his disciples from the town of Bethsaida, which is on the northern border of the Sea of Galilee, where he opened the physical eyes of a blind man. And now he's going to walk about 25 miles north of Bethsaida, about a day's journey, and he's going to open the spiritual eyes of his disciples in a town called Caesarea Philippi. He's going to tell them who he is. He's going to describe to them what kind of Messiah it is that he is so that they understand what it means to follow him. Now, Caesarea Philippi is a most unlikely place for God to choose to reveal himself to his disciples. It lay at the outer limits of paganism, idolatry, and general hostility to God's covenant with God's people. But it's here in this town, in this half-pagan town that Jesus decides to reveal himself to his disciples, resulting in the first human proclamation of Jesus as Messiah we find in the book of Mark. Friends, we have faith that Jesus, as he did in the first century, is well able in the 21st century to reveal himself in this most unlikely place, South Florida at the outer limits of paganism, idolatry, and general hostility toward God and his covenant people, that right here, he can reveal himself to us. For some of you who are Christians, most of you in this building, it will be a refresher course. It will be letting you see him afresh and anew in the midst of your difficulties, in the midst of a difficult time for you. But I pray for some of you who do not know Jesus. Like the blind man, you will see him for the very first time. And I actually want to pray for that right now. So bow your heads and join with me in prayer. Lord, I pray that you would take this word and that you would open the eyes, Lord, of those who are your people. Those that are still fast bound in darkness, those that are still blind, those that do have no idea, have not seen you. Today would be the day of salvation. And they would see you through this text and your word, your authoritative living word. 
And for the majority of us here, Lord, whose vision has become a little dim, we've gotten tired, it's a little blurry. The sweat is in our eyes. The weariness. Oh, give us a fresh vision, Jesus, of who you are and what it means to follow you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So who is Jesus? Point one. Well, the the major question is what we're going to look at. Look at that question in verse 27. They're walking from Bethsaida, 25 miles north to Caesarea Philippi. Imagine walking from here to, oh, let's say Deerfield Beach. And it's a day's journey. And on the way, it says in verse 27, Jesus just casually turns to them, but purposefully turns to them because he wants to introduce the topic of who he is. And he says, hey, guys, so who do people say that I am? And in verse 28, the disciples say, well, some of them say you're John the Baptist. Actually, Herod, the puppet king of Israel, thought that Jesus was the reincarnation of John the Baptist, whom Herod had beheaded. Others of them say, in verse 28, that you are Elijah. For a Jew, Elijah was a special prophet. He was the prophet who would be the forerunner of the final day of the Lord. You find that in Malachi. And then they said, and still others think you're you're one of the prophets. Actually, what they were thinking of, you're the prophet that Moses predicted would come in Deuteronomy 18. Now, all of these answers, they're very honoring to Jesus, aren't they? I mean, you're up there. I mean, it's kind of like people today when you ask them, who is Jesus? You may think this. And some people will say, oh, he's a great teacher. He's a man of peace. This is my favorite one. He's a good example. And while all of those are very flattering, in and of themselves, they all misrepresent Jesus as these people misrepresented Jesus. So in verse 29, Jesus slows down on this day-long walk up to Caesarea Philippi, and he stops and he turns to them. He says, but who do you say that I am? Ah, it's gotten a little bit more serious, huh? He's now making it very personal. He starts off by saying, hey, who do people say that I am? Kind of introduces the topic in general terms. Ah, you know, they say that. But who do you say that? Whoa. You talking to me? Yes, I'm talking to you. And see, this question points back to the question that Jesus asked the blind man in last week's sermon in Mark 8, 23b, when he said to the blind man, do you see anything? They just come from that. They're walking from having just healed the blind man 25 miles north to Caesarea Philippi. They've got that question ringing in their head. They've seen the miracle of someone totally blind having their sight restored. And they remember the question, do you see anything? And this question is linked to that question. But who do you say that I am? And friends, Jesus asks us the same question this morning. Who do you say Jesus is? It's the central question of the Bible and certainly the central question of the Gospel of Mark, a gospel which is the account of Jesus. It's the central question of history. It is the question for every human being, past, present, or future. Who do you say he is? Do you see anything this morning? Do you see the Lord Jesus? And if you do, who is he? Who is he? See, your answer will set the course of your life. 
And just like the blind man, and just like these disciples in a moment, apart from God's miraculous touch, as Jim just told us, we were locked in blindness and death and his wrath, but his touch opens our eyes. Apart from that, you can't answer correctly. But thankfully, by God's sovereign grace, he does touch our eyes. And he begins to give us this spiritual sight, just like he gave the disciples spiritual sight. And having been given spiritual sight, Peter, who obviously is the spokesman of the disciples, as we reviewed last week, something we discovered through our anthropological study, Peter was actually Cuban. (laughs) So he was the first one to answer, you are the Christ. You are the Christ. You are the Christ. But something very interesting happens in verse 30. Look at it with me. Look at verse 30. Put your finger on verse 30. I mean, this is the moment in the book of Mark. This is the first human that has acknowledged who Jesus is accurately. I mean, prior to this, demons have. The narrator has. God the Father has with his voice. This is the first human being that says the right thing here. You are the Christ. But look what Jesus tells them in verse 30. You see it? And he strictly charged them to tell no one about him. What? Yes. Here's why. Because though Peter got the title right, he misunderstood what kind of Christ Jesus was. Now, the word Christ is simply the English word for Messiah, Messias, anointed one. Peter and most Jews saw Christ, Messiah, the anointed one, as the Davidic warrior king. He would be that son of David who would rule like David ruled a thousand years earlier, conquering all of their enemies. See, Peter's idea, he got the title right, but Peter's idea about Christ, Messiah, was of a warrior king to throw the Romans out. He needed his sight to be adjusted. Peter, don't you remember the blind man when he was healed? And, and, and Jesus says, what do you see? Do you see anything? He says, yeah, I see people walking around like trees. And then Jesus spit on his eyes again and touched his eyes. And then he could see clearly. Well, right now, Peter is seeing Jesus like, like sort of trees walking around. Edwards, in his commentary, says this about Peter's confession. On the screen. Peter has supplied the proper title, but he has the wrong understanding. His vision, to use the imagery of 8, 22 to 26, is improved, but it's still blurry. Jesus will don the servant's towel rather than the warrior's sword. He will practice sacrifice above vengeance. He will not inflict suffering, but suffer himself as a ransom for many. As God's servant, Jesus must remain hidden if he is to complete God's appointment. See, this whole idea of Jesus suffering is the very thing that everybody missed. It's the very thing that Satan opposed in the garden in the temptation. Do you remember the temptation of Jesus in the garden? Satan, what Satan was trying to do is say, look, Jesus, I'll buy into the fact that you'll be king. But I'll tell you what, become a king apart from the cross. I'll give you the kingdoms of the world. Just don't go to the cross. Don't suffer. And so Jesus in the garden rebuked Satan. And in a moment, we're going to see Jesus here rebukes Peter. Why? Because Peter wants Messiah king, but he doesn't want to have to go through the cross. He doesn't understand the cross. 
He, he missed suffering Messiah. He loved King Messiah. He missed suffering Messiah. Do you? Do I? Oh, yeah. Especially when I'm suffering. We'll get to that in a moment. Because if he's the suffering Messiah, then this is a clue. How do we follow him? Suffering. I don't like that. I don't like that. And Peter didn't like that. Peter didn't understand that. So what happens? Jesus says, don't tell anybody because I'm going to teach you now what Messiah means. And it's going to be different from what you thought, Peter. Look at verse 31. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man, Jesus' favorite term for himself, must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed. And three days later, rise again. Friends, this is the gospel. If you want a summary of the gospel, here's the gospel. Jesus Christ must do these things. Do you see that word in verse 31? He began to teach them that the Son of Man must. Circle that word, must. You see, someone must obey God perfectly. We can't and couldn't. It's Jesus. And then someone must pay the price for the sin and the disobedience that all human beings do against God. Someone must, and that's Jesus on the cross. And then someone must rise again from the dead so that forgiveness of sins can be given to you and me. And that's Jesus. We can't. This must happen so that God's promised salvation can come to God's people. This is what Jesus must do. This is what Satan opposed. And this is invariably, or um, he didn't mean to, but, but unintentionally, Peter was opposing the very thing that must happen so that Peter could be saved. He was ignorant, like we are. And that's why Jesus had to oppose Peter. It's like dueling rebukes. Who's zooming who? Who's going to win here? I rebuke you. No, I rebuke you. Guess whose rebuke prevailed? Yeah, Jesus. Jesus' rebuke. See, the Peter and the disciples did not understand. They did not understand that Jesus had to suffer. They did not understand the suffering Messiah prophecies of Isaiah that we cherish today. Isaiah 53 Proceeding and that what precedes it, that he didn't understand it. What? Die? What? Rise again three days from the dead? What are you talking about, Jesus? They were confused. They were bewildered. They were dismayed by Jesus speaking of his suffering. They did not understand. And so they opposed him and he rebukes Jesus. Have you ever found yourself rebuking Jesus? Have you ever found yourself needing to correct Jesus? Peter is just simply trying to correct Jesus. Not, Jesus, you don't get it. I just told you you're the Christ and you just agreed that came from God. But your concept of Christ needs adjusting, Jesus. I, I find myself trying to correct God's concept of God. I know, that may surprise you. But we all have that in our DNA. We all want to be God. We begin to correct God when we miss what Scripture say about who Jesus is. When we miss what Scripture says about what he came to do. When the Christ that I get is not the Christ that I want in that particular instance. And in those moments, I find myself playing God rather than following Jesus. Jesus asks all of us this morning to consider where we found ourselves 
correcting God, where we find ourselves playing God rather than following Jesus. As I mentioned in verse 33, we see that Jesus, having just told Peter these things, and Peter now rebuking Jesus, verse 33 is a pregnant moment. I don't know where they were between Bethsaida and Caesarea Philippi. Maybe they were just about to get there. Maybe they were all hungry. But at this moment, freeze the scene. Peter is rebuking Jesus. He's correcting Jesus. Jesus turns. Look at verse 33, and it says, He sees the disciples, but turning. So I just imagine he's turning. And seeing the disciples, and this morning turning, and Jesus is looking at us right now. So we're standing there with the disciples. What does he do? Verse 33. He rebuked Peter and he said, get behind me, for you are setting your mind on the things, you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Here's the deal. Peter was on board with a warrior Messiah. He was not on board with the suffering Messiah. Peter was okay with Jesus coming to rule, but just not okay with Jesus coming to die on the cross. And in that moment, he was setting his mind on the things of man, not on the things of God. Where do you find yourself doing that? Where do I find myself doing that? Where is that in my life? Where is God correcting me? Where is God calling me to to love the cross? Yes. Yes. We're not born loving the cross. But if Jesus came to suffer and die on the cross, and if we're to follow Jesus, then this gives us a clue of what it means to follow Jesus. It certainly does. Point two, what does it mean to follow Jesus? Well, a right understanding of who Jesus is leads to a right understanding of what it means to follow him. A right understanding of discipleship. And that understanding, I think, can be summarized by verse 34a. Jesus calls the crowd to him with his disciples. So here's the call. And he says to them, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. So here's the summary of following Jesus. It's the call to die that we might live. It starts with the question. It moves to the clarification of who Jesus is. And now it terminates with the call to die that we might live. We, we, we see that if Jesus came to die on the cross, he is saying, as my disciples, you must bear your Christ. We'll look at it. Next slide, please. Here are, here are, here's the call to die that we might live. It starts with death to a self-centered life. Look at verse 34b. 34b. If anyone would come after me, that's a disciple, that's a follower of Christ, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Deny himself. What does that mean? What does deny himself mean? It simply means this. It means dethroning the idol of me. It is death to my opinion, my self-determination. It's death to treasuring what I think. This is the most difficult death of all, is it not? Whether it's what I think about God, and it starts there, what I think about others, my opinions. 
It, it's, it's death to that. That's what it means to denying myself. It means not treasuring what I think about God and others, but treasuring what God thinks about God and others. It is a denial of me. It is valuing God over my way, my opinion, my will. And valuing His ways above mine. It's what Jesus did. Listen, on his knees in the garden, he said, Oh, Father, if there's any way this cup can pass from my lips, from my hand. And then he says, But not my will, but thy will be done. Here's the mystery of the incarnation. God, one God, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. God is saying to God, Oh, if it be, if there's any way we can not do this, because I know what it's going to mean. But he said, Not my will, but thy will. And if that's our leader, if that's our Lord, then we must walk that way. Where? Is God calling you to deny yourself? Where is God calling you to lay down the tremendous treasure you have of your own opinion and pick up the treasure of God's opinion? Is it a relationship? Is it at work? Is it with your finances? Is it with the church? Is it with culture? Fill in the blank. Next, he says, deny yourself and take up your cross and follow me. Listen, that was so radical. (laughs) The cross for a Jew in the first century was the symbol of cruel pain and punishment. It wasn't a nice little piece of jewelry that we buy in a store somewhere like it is today. It was the place where people howled with misery, naked, where birds ate out their eyes, and they died of asphyxiation, a cruel, horrible death. It's it's the symbol that the Romans used to keep people in subjection under their authority. You mess with us and we'll crucify you. And it was the symbol of the church to which this gospel was written. This gospel, the gospel of Mark, was written to the church in Rome. So these people were experiencing the adversity of the cross. To them it wasn't a symbol, it was what Nero was using to kill them all. And so what's happening here? Jesus is saying, don't see this symbol of the cross. I'm telling you to take up your cross. I'm telling you this. When you're mistreated for my name's sake, don't be tempted that God has abandoned you, but rather turn and embrace this cross as your identification with me because I came, I died on that cross for your salvation and to fulfill God's promise to save you and finally follow Jesus. Still in verse 34, take up your cross and follow me. That simply means obeying the Lord. And now, in verses 36 and following, verses 36 and following, there are four fours. So think four fours. Four for four. Four fours. These four fours are going to explain what it means to deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow Jesus. Let's look at the first one. Next point. The call to die that we might have means a death to a safe life. Look at verse 35. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. Let me just say one more thing about the cross and also about this point. In Hebrews, it tells us that Jesus, despising the shame of the cross, saw the glory on the other side of the cross and went that way. This death to self-life isn't a recklessness where I just go do stupid things because I'm an adventurer. No, this death to a safe life is I, I see 
the cross. I see the sacrifice. I see how difficult this is going to be. But I look beyond that like Jesus did and I see the glory that awaits me on that side because by faith I see what my physical eyes cannot see and because of that glory I go through this cross in faith. That's what Jesus did. That's what Jesus did. I love what Danny Aiken says in his commentary on this text. The one who plays it safe and considers His existence, more important than Jesus, will lose both Jesus and eternal life. In contrast, the one who gives his life for Jesus and the gospel will actually save it. Following Jesus involves risking it all. Safety, security, satisfaction in this world. But he promises us that it leads to a reward this world can never, ever offer. There is a life worth giving. For the glory of God and the gospel. It is a dying to self that others might live. It is not safe, but it is the normal Christian life. Oh, may we, church, look past the cross and the suffering that is ours in this life. That we might see the glory that is promised. And the last three fours are found in this third point. What it means, this call to die that we might live, death to a self-serving life. Look at verse 36. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? Verse 37. For what can a man give in return for his soul? Friends, everything on this earth will eventually decay. What are you giving your life, your soul for? Another way of asking, where are you selling out and to what? What are you willing to sell your soul for? Is it worth it? On the last day, when you get old and you can't do it anymore, when all the money is gone and the stock market crashes and the storms come and the houses are are destroyed and the beautiful new cars are rusted out, what did you give it all for? Every ounce of your strength, every moment of your life, every thought that goes through your brain, every gift that God gave you, every dollar you earn, what's it for? Can it buy your soul? No, you cannot. Don't give your soul for that. It is Christ who has purchased your soul. It is Christ who has given you the grace to follow him. Give it all for him. Now, it's going to take them a while to get that. And it takes us a while to get it. Remember, gradual sight for the blind man, Bethsaida. We're still going to see you know, people as trees, but we're kind of shuffling in that direction. You know, when we do that, we feel life, don't we? Haven't you ever heard people say I didn't want to go serve downtown that day. But then once I did it, I felt like, great. I don't want to really share the gospel and risk my life here at work. You know, people are going to make fun of me. But then when I do it, don't don't you get this sense of like, I feel life. Even more life than when the Gators win a football game. But it's true, isn't it? I hate it, but when I do it, what happens? Out of death comes life. When I don't say that mean word to someone and I hold my temper and I let them say stuff about me at work and whatever it's going to be, but I trust God, there's life. But when I want to go get it and I'm done, somehow it doesn't feel as good when I self-indulge trying to find life. Here is life. Death is life. That's what Jesus is saying. And he brings it home. In verses 37 and 38, for what can a man give in return for his soul? Verse 38, for whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation of him, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of the Father with the holy angels. I believe what he's saying here is this is unbelief. 
is unbelief. Because once God calls us before the foundations of the world, reveals that, chooses us, and reveals that, we're his elect. But here what he's talking about is those that will not believe. Will not believe in the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. They're ashamed of Christ in a sense. That price he paid for me, it's not valuable to me. I'm going to figure it out. I was visiting someone in the hospital the other day, and, and I asked them, I, I, I said, hey, you're having a serious procedure here on Monday. You're an elderly person. And I, and I said, are you ready for what awaits you on the other side? Now, I prayed before I asked that. I didn't ask it flippantly. I, I, don't, I don't always do that. Uh, sometimes I do, but not always. But I felt this is the moment. This individual is older. I think this is the moment. Lord, you're going to give them grace to hear this. And they were very gracious. And they said, well, listen, you know, I'm sure you agree with me uh, being a pastor, but I'm confident that God will give me in that life, what I've earned in this life. And I said, actually, if you will allow me, that's not what the Bible teaches. And I just laid out the gospel. And I said, listen, God gives you in that life what Jesus earned in this life. Because if you got what you earned, it would be death and rejection and the wrath of God, which, by the way, is what Jesus took on the cross. And he gives you his perfect life and his redemption. And, and so I just said, look, the next life is not based on what we do in this life, but on what Jesus did. Don't be ashamed of that message, dear unbeliever. Now, I understand you can't respond to it unless God opens your eyes, but I pray he does. And run to him right now. Give your life to this. Tell the world about it. Here's the appeal. When God calls a man or a woman, he bids them to die that they might live. May we learn that. And may we learn to die that others might live. For this is what it means to follow Christ. We look to his glory, laying our lives down because he first laid his life down for us, as Jim mentioned in the offering. And by his grace, we do it. Only by his grace, we do it. But we see Jesus and then we answer his call. Listen, he didn't just open the blind man's eyes. He opened his ears to hear. So when he opens our eyes to see who Jesus is, then he opens our ears to hear Jesus' call to follow him. Let's pray. Worship team, would you please come up and join me? Father, I pray that this morning, if there are those here whose eyes have not been opened, whose ears have not been unstopped, that this would be the moment, Lord, you are sovereign in this. And I pray that you would open their eyes to see who you are, why you came, you would open their ears to hear your call and they would repent and believe and not be ashamed. Lord, for those of us who do follow you, God, there are places where we are very, very, very tempted to correct you. I am. Just get an attitude against you. Don't you know what you're doing? Don't you know who you are? You can't let this happen. Father, would you forgive us for playing God? It's, it's part of the fall that has affected us and you've redeemed us from And Lord, we just want to follow you. We want to humble ourselves before you. We want to say, you are Lord. Thank you that you came to give your life on the cross to redeem us. Lord, give us the grace to give our lives as you've given yours. Lord, let us embrace this call to follow you, to die that we might live, to die to self-centered living. Whatever that might be for you, friend, just begin to, to pray to God, to reveal it and give you the grace. 
to die to your own opinion about things. Embrace God's opinion and obey Him, follow Him. Lord, to die to the self-life, Lord, that we we all have this self-preservation deal going, Lord, that we just would look past the suffering and see the glory and to die to self-serving life. Lord, we, we want to lay our lives down because you first laid your life down for us. We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.